Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Martin Luther said, True it is that human wisdom and the liberal arts are noble gifts of God, good and useful for all kinds of things, wherefore one cannot do without them in this life. But they can never thoroughly tell us what sin and righteousness are in the eyes of God, how we can get rid of sins, become pious and just before God, and pass from death to life. Wisdom divine and an art supreme are required for this, and one does not find them in the books of any jurist or worldly wise person, but in the Bible alone, which is the Holy Spirit's book. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is the purpose of a Lutheran school? Why must we have and maintain Lutheran schools? Why might we say that Lutheran schools teach children how to live well, but also how to die well? January 24th through 30, 2021, is proclaimed National Lutheran Schools Week in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Wittenberg Academy has the privilege of providing scholars with a Lutheran education, with Lutheran education being defined as the classical liberal arts and catechesis. While not a good bumper sticker, nor probably a good marketing campaign, the truth is Lutheran schools should certainly teach scholars to not only live well, but also to die well. If our purpose for teaching is only for life in this world, then we have missed the mark. Joining us today to discuss Lutheran schools, both their history and their importance, is Dr. Thomas Korchuk. Reverend Thomas Korchuk is Associate Professor at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Previously, he served as Associate Professor at Concordia University in Chicago. He served as pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church Barrie and Grace Loxley and developed Grace Evangelical Lutheran School in Pembroke. He is a reserve chaplain in the Canadian Forces, and he is also author of Lutheran Education from Wittenberg to the Future. Dr. Korchak, before we begin, I need to put a plug in for your book. If any of our listeners have not read Lutheran Education from Wittenberg to the Future, you need to do so. I always say that context matters, and Dr. Korchak's book not only does a brilliant job of providing context for today's Lutheran schools, but it also challenges anyone interested in Lutheran education to truly consider what constitutes a Lutheran education. That being said, let's discuss some of that context. Dr. Korchak, thinking about the purpose of Lutheran schools, what was the context of the beginning of and growth of Lutheran schools? Well, Jocelyn, it is good to be here, and I'm glad to be taking part in the National Lutheran Schools Week and supporting Wittenberg Academy. And I think Wittenberg Academy is really going a long way in continuing the, the rich tradition of Lutheran schools as it dates back to the Reformation. When we go back to the, the purpose of 
Lutheran schools, it's always good to go back to the beginnings, to go back to, to the Reformation and look at what schools were designed to do then and maybe learn some lessons for what they should be designed to do now. So back in the Reformation, they lived in a period of time very much like we lived in, a period of economic change, a period of social change, social upheaval, a period obviously of enormous theological upheaval. And I even like to say it's a period of time when Europe was feeling threatened by Islam through the Turks. So we can see a lot of parallels with it. So in this time of great change, in this time of great turmoil, when it looks like all of society seems to be falling apart and the old order is falling away, what were the needs? Boiling it down, you can say that the needs are threefold. One was to prepare a child for vocation, to prepare a child to serve as a leader in the church, and to prepare a child to serve as a leader in society. So if let's take the first one, vocation. Now, usually when we think about vocation, it's just in terms of service to neighbor. But vocation is, is greater that, than that aspect. It, it has to be understood in terms of law and gospel. So one serves one neighbor, and that is a work of the law. That is, is done in obedience to the law. It is the area where one conducts one's good works. But according to the law, it's in the law that we learn of our, our need for a savior. And so vocation, properly understood, is the place where we get turned back to the gospel. What does that have to do with Lutheran education? Well, a Lutheran education was to teach people about working out their vocation and understanding that vocation under the law, that, th that it was in their vocation that they would recognize their sin and then be turned back to the gospel. If they didn't recognize the law in their lives, if they didn't recognize their sin, then the gospel would be of no use. So in addition to serving neighbor to the very best of their ability, it was that law gospel construct that was important. The second need for Lutheran schools was that the community, the, the society, the government needed leaders. And so when Luther writes to parents about their need to send children to school, he emphasizes how the government is in need of godly leaders, people who will be able to integrate their faith into service to government. And so they need to be wise, they need to be well-read, they need to be well-educated in order to conduct their calling in an appropriate manner. And we can see this need bubbling up when you look at the signatories to the Lutheran Confessions. If you look at the signatories to the Augsburg Confession, they're princes, they're margraves, they're landgraves, they're civic leaders that are signing. And these people not only had to understand the faith, but also had to be able to integrate the, the faith into their role as being political leaders. And finally, there was a need for leaders in the church. All of the old order had been upset. The way that the church received her priests had been disrupted. Monasteries had been closed down. So the question that was facing 
the evangelicals of the 16th century is where are we going to get our pastors? And are those pastors going to be able to teach the evangelical faith in all its truth and in all its, its purity? And so it's for that reason that schools became so important. This is what Luther brings up in his letter to the parents. He says, where are we going to get our pastors if we don't have Lutheran schools that are training our young boys? So even if a young boy didn't become a pastor, at least if he was properly trained, he could be a pastor in reserve, ready to offer leadership in the church if the needs required. So those are the, the three drivers for Lutheran education in the 16th century. Now, it's interesting, as you took us through those three drivers, that if we somehow stepped out and missed the fact that you were talking about the beginning of Lutheran education, we could very potentially think that you were talking about right now and the context of our day, because we need that law gospel reminder. We need that living out of vocation in service of neighbor. We need civic leaders who understand the faith and integrate that into the work of the state. And we certainly need pastors. We need men who are being brought up and trained up so that they can serve the church in the proclamation of the word and right administration of the the sacraments. And so I don't want to jump ahead because I know we're going to get there, but just thinking about the similarities between the contexts, it's not ironic, perhaps, but uncanny as to the similarities. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And what I would do is challenge your listeners to start filtering the news that we have and the events that are going on in, in our society and in our world right now through the lens of education and start asking the question, how has our prevailing educational paradigms set us up for the conditions that we are experiencing in America right now? That is a question that's rarely raised. And yet I'm convinced that that is absolute key. If we have educational paradigms that are uh, saying there is no truth and that everyone can construct their own truth, should it be a surprise when people don't believe truth anymore or don't, don't look to objective facts? Right. When we have an educational paradigm that says you can't trust any institution, that they're all corrupt. And these are liberal ideas, right? These are espoused by the philosophically liberal wing of the establishment. Then should we be surprised that people don't trust the institutions? And if they don't trust the institutions, and if they're told not to trust institutions, should we be surprised that we don't have leaders then that are rising to occupy positions of leaderships. I mean, we're turning children away. The very children that we need at a time like this to grow up and be the leaders we need are the type of children we're turning away and saying, you can't trust them. You shouldn't be involved in this. And 
and we end up in this huge mess. Just thinking of how that perpetuated forward in the history of Lutheran education, that this three-pronged driving of Lutheran education, that didn't stay in Wittenberg. No, it didn't. It becomes the standard for German education. And it should be of no surprise that through to the 19th century, Germany was the leader in all areas of education, of all areas of science and research and knowledge and that. Now, theologically, they start to go off the rails, but they have this rich heritage which had equipped leaders and theologians and intellectual leaders. And so it bears out the fruits of the Lutheran Reformation education experiment really are seen years down the road, centuries down the road. Like I said, over time, theologically, they go off the rails, but they do have that heritage to draw on. Now, it's kind of interesting to ponder, you know, especially in light of your encouragement to think about our current context in terms of looking at it through the lens of education and the decisions that have been made historically in education, I bet we could look back through the history of Lutheran education, since that's our topic for the day, and mm-hmm. see these kind of waves of there's, there's a rise and things are great, and maybe they continue further than they might have because we were living off the fumes of the bold heritage that had been built prior. Oh, uh, and I think you're, you're right on the money on that one. One of the best examples is to look in the early 19th century. That's the world that the Saxon leaders... Walther and company are growing up in, and they received an amazing education in the gymnasium. While their education was theologically wacko, it was rife with rationalism, the standards and the the style in which they were educated enabled these leaders to go back to Luther, to go back to earlier Lutheran theologians and understand it, and then incorporate that and apply it in a modern way, modern for their perspective, appropriate to the the 19th century. And that causes then a rebirth, a renewal of classical Lutheran education. So when they're puttering around in Saxony, the common kind of misconception is that the the Saxons came to America for religious freedom, that they weren't allowed to worship the way they they wanted to because of rationalism in Germany, and they came here for so that they could have churches. Now, there were parts of Germany that were very oppressive for religious services, such as in Prussia, but in Saxony, that didn't apply. In fact, in Saxony, they were perfectly willing to let the conservative evangelical Lutheran pastors used their own agendas, used their own hymnals. To, they left the worship services alone. 
where the government did interfere was in the schools. And so all of the Saxon leaders got in trouble with the government over schools and specifically over curriculum. Walter in particular got into big trouble because he refused to use the curriculum that the government was prescribing. And in fact, one of his his patrons had to bail him out. He had a hefty fine levied against him for disobeying the ministry guidelines. And so he was financially bailed out of that situation. And subsequently, he had to leave and come to America. But you can see there's a, a bit of a parallel there, because in America, we've set ourselves up where our schools are increasingly coming under the supervision of the government. And that's happened for a number of reasons. Some of it has been innocent. Some of it has been deliberate. I'm not going to get into all that. But increasingly, we're looking to the government for matters of curriculum, for matters of accreditation, and for direction as to how our schools should be operated. And the more we look to the government, the more control the government has over us. So in America, yes, no one's going to interfere with what goes on inside the walls of the church. But increasingly, we face a threat of interference for what goes on in the schools. And so when we start talking accreditation and looking to the government, to the state for accreditation, for the state to say, these are the appropriate teachers, we've placed ourselves in very much a similar situation that the Saxons found themselves in. Can you take us through, and, and we might circle back around later, but can you take us through just a real brief history? A lot of our listeners might not know the history of accreditation of Lutheran schools. We hear a lot about accreditation if we're involved in Lutheran education here in the States, but Lutheran schools in in the United States haven't always been accredited. Can you take us through that history and how this all came to be? Yes. Well, each each state is different, right? And that makes it hard to cast a blanket over it all. But you could center in on not accreditation of the schools per se, but accreditation of teachers and the whole area of teacher licensure. So if we just look at that narrow area, historically, in Missouri Synod at least, it is the church which certified her teachers, just as the same as it's the church which certified pastors. And if you were to go to any Missouri Synod Lutheran back in the early 20th century, let's say, and say, should we get government approval for your teachers? They would have just been beside themselves. They would have said, that's absolutely ridiculous. We don't ask the the government to, to certify our pastors, do we? Well, what happens through the 50s and 60s state certification became a kind of a nice add-on. So if you graduated from, say, Concordia Teachers College in River Forest, it's circa 1958, I'll pull that out of the air, you could get state certification just by sending in your, your transcripts to the state, and they would give you state certification. So that was kind of a nice add-on. It didn't have anything to do with how the school ran 
uh, its teacher training program. Over time, though, the state's government being what government is, there's never an area of regulation that they don't want to regulate, given their natural propensity. So they assume more and more control over what constitutes licensure for teachers. And increasingly, Lutheran colleges of education come under the domain of state boards of education. And and states start saying, you must have this course, you must provide this training, you must have this sort of experience, you must use this sort of philosophy. And once that gets going, it just, there's no end to it. Prior to this, historically, who taught the teachers before they became teachers? You know, who who were the the professors at the Concordias? Well, that's kind of an interesting question because teacher training was a minor in school. You would take a few courses in in pedagogy, but the most important part was that you received a well-rounded education, that you you were well-versed and well-trained in the, the liberal arts, that you had training in music and languages, in history, and all the important subjects, because the understanding was, if you're going to teach, you have to know. Over time, the, sh- the shift happens where methodology and methods courses become more important than content. The effects have been detrimental. Just this morning, I was watching, I think it was ABC and or CBS, one of those, and they were interviewing, just it was a man on the street type interview where they would stop people and ask them civics questions, questions that were on citizenship tests. And fewer than four out of 10 Americans would be able to pass a basic citizenship test. These are questions like name the three branches of government. Now, that's shocking in and of itself. I used to ask student teachers those same type questions, name the three branches of government. And proper response rate would be in the upper 20s, lower 30%. Most couldn't answer the, the basics of American history, the basics of American civics. And if, if that's kind of the world we're in, what, what do you have to provide for students? If you don't have that knowledge base, all the methods course in the world won't allow you to teach anything of worth. So coming from this three-pronged driving behind the purpose of education and thinking about all of the things that come into play as we march through history from Wittenberg to Saxony, the Saxons come over to the States. And there are a lot of variables that are going on in terms of the the challenges that are being faced by those who are driving Lutheran education. Right, yeah. You had mentioned that the Saxons came over not because of religious persecution, and maybe they saw the writing on the wall, you know, in terms of what was going on in Prussia, but they saw that they weren't able to teach in their schools 
what they needed to teach in order for these young people to receive a Lutheran education. So they left. In terms of the challenges that then they faced when they got here, have we covered all of those or is there more nuance in that? If you imagine, try and picture yourself as a German immigrant, you're coming over from, from let's say Saxony, and you land in Missouri in, in the mid-1800s, what are you faced with? First off, you're faced with a language barrier. Uh, you are now a foreigner in a strange land, and you're an outsider. In this strange land, they don't not just understand what you're saying, because you're speaking German, but they don't understand the way you think. They don't understand the way you believe. Uh, and so one of the obstacles that they face is being able to communicate the evangelical faith outside to the, the world around them. And part, part, of the, part of the way they react to that is by turning inwards, which is unfortunate, but that's what happens with immigrant communities. A bigger challenge you're going to face is how do you pass this on to your children? Because while you can maintain that culture, that German cultural heritage and the German language for uh, to your children, you maybe your grandchildren, after that, they're going to be thoroughly integrated into this new land, and their first language will not be German, it will be English. So how are you going to transmit that which is most important for them? It was the faith to their, their succeeding generations. And that's where Lutheran schools become so crucial. One line of arguing is that Lutheran schools are set up to propagate the continuance of German. And that's just way too simplistic. German is retained, and it's important to retain because German is the language of faith. There aren't any English resources. You don't have the Book of Concord readily available in English. You don't have the Augsburg Confession. You don't have hymns. You don't have liturgy. This is all in German. So you have to keep teaching German if you want to keep the faith. But very early on, English is also incorporated because they recognize that these, these, their children are going to be operating in an English world. And so if they're going to assume positions of authority in this developing society, as settlers are moving in, they have to be well-educated and they also have to have a command, not only of German, but also of English. And so if you look at American Midwestern culture or society, in the 1800s, you quickly see where Lutherans do take those positions of leadership, not only in government, but also in industry. I, I always like to say, look at some of the, the old food brands that we have, Kraft, Fleischmann's, Hellmann's. You go down the list, they're all German names. They were all Lutherans who were educated in Lutheran schools, and they used their education to become successful businessmen and leaders in society in that way. Thinking about all of this, 
and the rich heritage that the Saxons brought with them to the United States when they came over, how, how did Lutheran schools change then after German was no longer the predominant language? As schools shifted to teaching primarily in English rather than in German. Yeah, there is really interesting shift that takes place mostly through the 20th century. And some of it happens for good reason. I mean, some of it is in reaction because, face it, it you had some old crusty Germans who insisted that, that education couldn't change that. It had to be exactly the way they had it in Germany. And so you have younger American Lutherans growing up who rebel against that, that attitude. But what they do, they're driven then towards prevailing American educational pedagogies. So they lose the ability to say, okay, well, uh, this is how we can adapt our Lutheran heritage to our current situation. This is how the liberal arts should now be taught in a 20th century American setting to saying, well, that's just a German way of teaching. Now we're American, we should adopt American ways. And through the 20th century, you see this adoption of American pedagogy. And slowly but surely, Lutheran eyes look away from their own sources and start looking outward. So, for example, at the Synod's main teaching school, which is in the River Forest, that is just down the road from University of Chicago, where John Dewey is teaching. Now, you would think that you have someone who is espousing Marxism, who's socialism, who's decrying the Christian faith as a corrupter of minds. You would think that Lutheran educators would have been repulsed by this, and yet they begin to speak very kindly of him, and they start importing his methods, his philosophies, into teacher education. This is a slow process that happens over decades, and it's subtle, it's slow, and as a result, it goes mostly unnoticed. But its effects is that slowly Lutheran children are educated almost exactly the same way as their secular counterparts, with the exception that they have chapel service and, and religious education classes. But the, the teaching methodology, the way children are formed, the way they think is exactly the same. And then it should be of no surprise when after this has taken root in our churches that we have generations of kids who are going through Lutheran schools, who grow up in a Lutheran school, and then as soon as they graduate, they leave or they go nowhere. Well, in part, that's the way they've been formed to think. That's the way the whole educational philosophy is designed. It's designed to get them to think counter to the evangelical faith. So we've been teaching them the content of the faith. Here's the religion classes. Here's the, here are the hymns. Memorize all this stuff. But we've also been teaching them to think in a way that's contrary to the information they're receiving. But thinking about that shift... I always cringe thinking about the proximity between 
University of Chicago and River Forest and what was going on and why didn't someone say something? We could have, you know, all of these coulda, shoulda, woulda sort of things. Yeah. I like to try and put this sort of thing on a positive construction. They are faced with challenges. I mean, in the early 20th century, Lutheran schools and Lutherans were under enormous threats. In Collinsville, Illinois, there's a lynching of a teacher, I believe, that happens. A Lutheran teacher. There's Lutheran churches that are burned. In Nebraska, there are laws that are being passed that are directed against Lutheran schools where they're forbidden to teach German. Those laws are taken to the Supreme Court, eventually overturned, but the message is pretty clear. It's better to conform and try and blend in than face the wrath of society. This is an immigrant community, and their whole desire is to blend in, and they're not. So you can see where the desire is, let's try and be as faithful as we can. And at the same time, you're in a church that's booming. Schools are growing. Churches are filling up as fast as you build them. How can you say that what we're doing is wrong? So look back at the people of this time and try and be as gracious to them as possible because they aren't being deliberately evil about it. It happens in some ways very innocently. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when you're in the midst of a situation you can't see what's changing because you are part of the change. And so absolutely, that's that's a, a good point. And I always appreciate, Tom, that you temper some of my zeal when I need to be tempered. So that's a fantastic perspective, and, and I appreciate that. Well, and, and this is where we have the advantage today. We do have the advantage of being removed from that situation. And we do have the advantage now of not living at a time when the church is experiencing great numerical success. We can separate ourselves out from that theology of glory, a theology that says, look how great things are. And we can be more critical of things. And I don't mean critical in a bad way, but we can assess where we have been in a more objective way than maybe previous generations have been. You know, I look at the that shift between German and English and think about the impact that that had on certainly the churches, but also the schools. And we don't always, you know, we think about that in terms of of hymnody and and these sorts of things, and we're we're quick to jump on the language shift made a, a big impact, and we also have to take take that into consideration in terms of of the schools. I wonder if thinking about where we are today and the fact that we can see looking back the similarities from from era to era, from epic to epic, that. In our day right now, we have a, a similar challenge in terms of going along with the world. And, and this, is a, this is always the challenge of life under the cross, right? But in terms of, of thinking specifically about Lutheran schools, that we have this choice, are we going to go along with the world? Are we going to consider the things of the world that, that well, 
we can still teach Jesus. So the other stuff isn't that big of a deal. It seems that if we look back in our history, that that unity of the liberal arts and catechesis, that that wasn't an optional unity in a Lutheran education, that that was really a requirement. It was an essential piece if you wanted to have and maintain a Lutheran school. Oh, absolutely. And I think your connection with the need for today is bang on. Look at it in this way. First of all, families need it more than ever before. The, the nature of modern pedagogy is that it works against family, not just in uh, direct ways where, you know, the nature of marriage is challenged and, you know, marriage can be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman and a, you know, a dog and a cat. But also this idea that uh, what's most important is this self-fulfillment concept. And so you go where you're going to be most fulfilled. And, and you know, maybe that means that you're just going to go to follow a job that's a thousand miles away because that's a way of being fulfilled. Families need it. Families need to see that God has placed them in service to each other. And that's where they're needed the most. And I think a true classical Lutheran education will cement that more than anything else. Congregations need it. One of the frustrating parts of being in a parish was when I would talk to people, and these were people that were in church on an every Sunday basis. They had been catechized by good Orthodox pastors. They were involved, and yet they had a real hard time accepting and integrating the teachings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church into their lives. So you would say, well, use marriage as an example, uh, marriages between a man and a woman, and they would say, yes, that's what the Bible says, but, you know, these are the pressures we face, right? And so there's this or the real challenge to integrate the faith into the way I actually think, if that makes sense. And Lutheran education does that. It strengthens the congregation. When people aren't able to integrate the faith, it weakens the congregation and it weakens their confession in front of the community. And finally, the, the church at large needs it. One of the huge challenges we're facing is a shortage of pastors, a shortage of teachers, a shortage of professors. We can't get Lutheran professors. They just aren't out there. We can't get good Lutheran pastors. They're just, our, our seminaries are half empty, and that doesn't bode well. Part of the, the trouble with getting good professors is we used to rely on this cradle-to-grave type education, where a child would start getting a solid Lutheran education the day they walked into school, then they went to a Lutheran high school, and they learned their languages, uh, then they went to junior college, where they were then exposed to theology. Then they went to seminary. Well, by the time they got done seminary, we were producing first-rate uh, academicians as well as first-rate theologians. And Missouri Synod was able to produce world-class theologians. 
That system doesn't exist any longer, and our church is suffering because of it. We are unable to exert our theological leadership that we have. And this is the challenge of life this side of heaven, right? That the the adversary is going to, our foe, Satan, along with our sinful flesh and the world, the adversary is is from within, but also attacking from without. And thinking about if you are going to go into battle, if your goal is to stay alive in battle, you want to make sure that you are equipped for that battle and you have to know your enemy because you're going to be in the midst of your enemy and the enemy might infiltrate within your ranks And so you have to be prepared and equipped from all sides. How does a Lutheran education fit in that preparation to stay alive this side of heaven? Yes, and your comparison with the military is a good one, because military doctrine is stressing the need for the individual soldier to be equipped for a whole variety of assaults, to recognize that the threat isn't just from a standing army in some other country, but that that they have to be ready for assaults over the internet, for example. So we do training to give awareness of hate literature that may come through the internet, for example. That's in the military. Well, if we're to apply that to Lutheran education, We need well-rounded warriors, if you want to use that expression. We not only have to have them well-trained in theology, but also well-trained in the arts as well. They have to understand science and be able to look critically at the information that they receive. They have to be able to understand that education is more than just information, that it includes truth and wisdom and beauty and goodness. And in those ways, they are then well prepared to be Christian citizens. So thinking about this, we've explored in depth the reality and need for and purpose of Lutheran schools as it relates to our lives this side of heaven. You know, in the context of the liberal arts and catechesis, we should be preparing scholars to love and serve their neighbors and all of their vocations. And we've talked about the impact that this has on the family, on the church, on society. You can look back through history and Luther talked about this and Walther talked about this and Chemnitz talked about this. This isn't a new thing, but it's not the whole picture because we aren't preparing scholars, we aren't preparing young people, the church doesn't exist and the the schools don't exist just for life this side of heaven. If we're really honest with ourselves, Lutheran schools should not just prepare scholars to live well, but also to die well. Why is this such an important thing to consider. Well, I think even you have said, and I've repeated it, is what's it worth to you 
how much do you want to see your children in heaven? If you want to see your children in heaven, that's going to shape the way we do education, right? That's going to be the, the end goal. That's the end state, to put it in military terms. The end state is we want our children in heaven. Now, how humanly are we going to do that? And that gets back to this teaching the nature of law and gospel, teaching them the nature of God's word, teaching them the, the comfort that's gained from God's word, that God's word is our great heritage, to quote the hymn. And as they look to the word and not to the world, then they're better prepared for heaven. And the better prepared you are for heaven, the better you are prepared for life in this world. Each time we gather for worship, it's a mini little death rehearsal, right? We're dying to sin. We also talk about the death of Christ. And we look forward to the day when we will be done with this world completely. And Lutheran schools, in some way, should be little training grounds for that. Places where they, they are faced with their sin, with, where they're faced with their mortality, where they're faced with their limitations. So then they can be prepared to accept the immortality, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. Now, that kind of sounds a little bit, you know, almost depressing, <laughs> but not if you understand the grave from a, a proper perspective. The grave holds no fear for the Christian. This is the hope that we have. This is the truth and the reality. And this is the context in which we teach our children. This is a Lutheran education that death has no sting. This is why, right, a Lutheran education is not only the best education but it is the vital, essential education. Dr. Thomas Korchak is the author of Lutheran Education, Wittenberg to the Future. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Jocelyn, it's been a privilege. God bless the, the work of Wittenberg Academy. And if I may, I want to give a special shout out to the Benson Boys. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.